This is the Reluctant Leader Podcast, the podcast designed to help you if you've landed a leadership role through no fault of your own and now need to find out what you should be doing. I'm your host, Mark Terrell, and have been there and know what it feels like and made all the mistakes. In each episode, I'll be getting to grips with a leadership topic by interviewing an expert in their field. You'll find out why they do what they do and take away some top tips you can use to become a more confident leader. For more content and to keep in touch with how the project is developing, go to www.thereluctantleader.co.uk. If you have any comments about the episode, you'll find me on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. So let's crack on with the show. Today I'm talking to Tamsin Gary. Tamsin is a HR professional with a background in the corporate sector with over 10 years experience as a consultant developing organisations and their people and having run her own mental health practice for over six years, Tamsin is very familiar with the challenges faced by organisations and their people in the modern business world. Originally qualifying as a psychotherapist over 15 years ago, Tamsin chose to retrain in the modern neuroscientific solution-focused approach in order to update her knowledge and skills. She now co-owns and runs Mental Health in the Workplace, working in partnership with organisations who want to reduce and prevent mental ill health and create an environment where people thrive and contribute the best of themselves so the business thrives by default. I hope you enjoy this chat we had about mental health and I will catch you all on the other side. Tamsin, welcome to the Reluctant Leader podcast. Hi Mark, thanks for having me. It's taken us a while to get this sorted out because you're all very, very busy. Um, <laughs> we are going to be talking about mental health uh, in yes. the workplace. Yes. And this is going out at a timely um, date, actually. I think it's, it's um, which the first time that it goes out live will be the Monday after Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK oh. in 2019. So um, hopefully it'll be... Well, it'll be obviously just the right time for people. Hopefully, they've got this at the front of their minds, and it should always always be a, uh, something that we're we're thinking about. Absolutely. But before we get stuck into all that, um, the first question I ask all the guests on my podcast is, "What? Why do you do what you do? And what was the pivotal moment that took you down this path?" Okay, um, so as you know, um, my background's in human resources and operational management in the corporate sector. Uh, so started in oil and gas and ended up in investment banking. Um, and, you know, was pretty tenacious and ambitious and did the whole kind of ladder climb very quickly. Uh, achieved a fair amount, found myself in a leadership and management position at the age of 26. Um, with two departments due to a colleague of mine going on maternity leave and um, managed to do a rather convincing job of managing it all very well um, until I got to about, yeah, probably halfway through my 27th year and my back completely went. Um, and by went, I mean, I was literally um, bending over to press in, to put the vacuum cleaner into the wall and it just gave way completely. Um, and so I ended up laid up in bed for two weeks, unable to move. Um, and that was quite a sobering moment. And of course now, knowing what I know now, I realise looking back that that was my body's way of basically stopping me because, um, you know, I was, I was doing too much. I had too much responsibility. I didn't have the capability to do it. I was putting on a very good front. Um, I appeared to be managing it. 
Uh, and nobody really noticed, including myself, that actually I was heading down a bit of a spiral, really. A bit of a spiral into physical and also, now I realise, mental ill health. Um, so it's funny because, as you know, I've done an awful lot of different things um, in the 20 years that have followed, um, or 18 years that have followed. But it's very interesting how I've ended up now running a business in the area of mental health in the workplace, uh, considering everything that I did um, as a result of that realisation, because I went through a significant life change back then, and at 29 years old, left everything and everyone, disappeared to the other side of the world, and retrained in lots of different things that I felt passionate about without any real kind of plan as to how I was going to use them in the future. Things like psychology, psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, coaching, NLP, Chinese medicine, <laughs> and uh, found myself as a business owner at the age of 33 back in the UK, um, initially as a, as a coach. Um, and, you know, there starts the last 12 years, really, of uh, running businesses. Right. And so the path that you've now, you've, where you are at the moment, you're yes. spending most, you know, your, your focus is on this mental health um, area. Yes. Um, so what was the, the reason why you've, you've maybe pivoted a bit from maybe just the, the business coaching arena to, the, to this yeah. arena? Um, well, it's really interesting, actually, because I've been asked that question a lot recently. And I've been asking myself that question, too, is how have I come full circle? And I think, you know, working in the small business space, and by small business, I mean, you know, anything up to about, you know, 50, 60, 70 employees. Um, one of the things that's been really clear and consistent is that mental well-being and mental resilience is critical to people being able to work at the optimum and contribute the best of themselves, not just to their work, but to their life as well. And one of the things that's really clear is that businesses, you know, regardless of the systems and processes that operate businesses, businesses are ultimately grown and run by people. Um, and so it makes sense to me and has made sense to me over the years. And I've seen it kind of evidenced in all the work that I've done that when you have a growth strategy that has an emphasis on people wellness, then it enables people to be the best version of themselves at work. And so what happens is when people are thriving, because the conditions are such that they can thrive, then organisations and businesses thrive by default. So although a lot of the work I've done has been around business growth strategy and how you actually enable people to engage better and contribute more and perform um, in an enhanced way, actually, fundamentally, underneath all of it, is a very simple thing, and that is wellness. Um, because when we're in ill health, we don't, we're not able to do any of that. Not we. Sometimes we can present as if we can do that stuff, but it's, you know, ultimately, you know, people will fall 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 over if uh, if they don't have positive mental well-being underpinning mm. it all. Mm. So that's you know, it's interesting, kind of looking back. That that's been kind of the consistent thing. And when we hear the word well-being, it you know, sometimes it can sound a bit of a nice to have or a bit of fluffy, but I'm talking about having, you know, optimum health on a physical and mental basis, which ultimately enables us to be more creative, more innovative, more adaptable, more resilient. And as a result of that, do better work. Mm, absolutely. So we've got two angles here, haven't we? Because we've got the mental health of the, the leader uh, initially, cause, and we have to take responsibility for our own mental health. But with that, with that, and when we're leading a team, we've also got to think about 
um, our, as, it, as it appears now, our legal responsibility to look after the mental health of our, our team as well. So, so coming from a position where I used to have this and I used to run a team and, and obviously the burden of running a business and all that, it can, can become quite overwhelming. And when someone tells you something else, like you're now responsible for your team's mental health and well-being, it becomes another like, oh my God, it's another thing I've got to, um, it, you know, it can become quite a burden and actually affect yes. your, your mental health, isn't it? Yes, so how, how, do we, how would you say that it's best to manage that? And what does that actually mean when you say that you're responsible for the, the mental health of your, your workforce? What does that actually mean? And what do you actually really need to do in that respect? Uh, okay, so I mean, there's a number of ways of looking at that, but let's just, you know, keep it kind of very simple, because you're mm. right, it sounds like a, it, you know, it does feel like a burden, it sounds like a huge task, and I think often the scale of the perceived task is enough to put employers off doing anything about it, and sometimes, it, you know, it's easier to just ignore that there's an issue. Mm. Um, so for me, one of the things that the HSE talk about is encouraging open dialogue, um, and one of the things that's been kind of shown now is that stigma, so the stigma that surrounds mental health, when people hear the term physical health, people don't necessarily think problem. You know, when we hear physical health, we think it's a state of health, whether that's positive or negative. When we hear mental health, we tend to think issue, problem, condition. Um, so, and that's stigma that's created that. So actually, when if a leader can take the approach of reducing stigma around the issue because fundamentally if people are feeling um stressed and are carrying the burden of more demands than they feel they can cope with then that is a version of having mental health issues um, it is that simple and yet when we hear mental health we, we think of you know conditions that we find scary uh, because we don't understand them um, but our mental health is compromised when we're just feeling more pressure than we feel we can cope with. And so just removing stigma in an organisation and encouraging open dialogue around the issues in itself creates the conditions to reduce mental health issues. So mm. that's at a very, very simple level. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you take it to the other end of the spectrum, you've got the whole kind of legal angle, which is you've got health and safety law that says... As an employer, it's your responsibility to protect the health and safety of the people that work for you. Um, now, that includes their mental health and safety too. And again, the HSC is a really great place to go here because they talk about a number of different, um, what they call areas of work design um, that can affect people's mental health. Uh, so things like the level to which people feel that they have control over how and where they do their work for instance, um, the relationships that they have at work and whether they feel that those relationships are positive, uh, the demands that they feel that they have on them in terms of workload and work patterns or the work environment, the support they feel they have in terms of encouragement and resources. So, you know, when you take these six areas of work design, there are things that can be done practically that aren't necessarily um, hugely um, expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, that can improve working conditions and therefore reduce the potential for um, impacting somebody's mental health in a negative way. And then the second law is equality law, which includes disability. Um, some mental health conditions are protected. 
Um, and so organisations have a responsibility to be able to spot what those conditions are, uh, spot the signs of people that might be suffering with them, and make sure that they're not discriminated against in the workplace. So, you know, not offered the same opportunities as other people in the, in the, in the business. So hmm. there's this kind of spectrum, isn't there, from, you hmm. know, stigma, reduce stigma just by actually encouraging open dialogue, you know, perhaps provide some training as well around mental health so that there's increased awareness. And then at the other end of the spectrum is all, you know, the policy and the infrastructure. And that's why I think it's, it's overwhelming uh, for some employers. Yeah, it's one of those things. One of those things you don't know where to start, and you need some yeah. guidance as to okay, you know what? What's the first thing I should do? You know, where should I start? Because really, it's I could start anywhere, and I'm not sure whether it's it's the right thing or not. Um, but I've I've written something down here actually, which I've, I've managed to pick out of something when I was googling beforehand, which I generally do before these podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, what we, what we got to remember is actually work is good for our health, our mental health, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We just yeah. need to find the right one for us, uh, yeah. and that's the thing, isn't it? And and um, and because being in work is better than in most cases of being out of work, and that tends to um, lead to poor mental health when you're out of work for a long time, long, long period of time, doesn't it? That's a really good point. And, you know, if you take Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, you know, part of the whole um, area around identity and contribution mm-hmm. and impact which obviously comes a little bit higher up the scale after shelter and food and water. Yeah. You know, that one of the ways that we do that is in our employment. What we mm. choose to do is a vocation. You know, that's how we, we get a lot of identity from that. And, you know, lack of identity can create poor mental well-being. Positive identity, you know, can create very positive mental well-being. Mm. So that's right. really important. Yeah, I, I was I was asked to be on a like a panel which which was discussing mental um, well being uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and then I came out. I came from the angle of actually, if you are you're ne- not getting uh, what what you want from work, which is what you said about you know feeling that you're making a difference, making doing something that's worthwhile, basically feeding and fulfilling our motivations then that can, if it's over a long period of time, I'm not, think, I'm not saying one day or uh, even a week, but if you've got a situation when you are not fulfilling what you really want in that role for a long period of time, that, that, that could be a trigger mm-hmm. for, for, for poor mental health, I guess. Absolutely, and it's the same in life as well, isn't it? If, mm-hmm. you're, uh, if there's no sense of purpose, you know, purpose is, is, is a critical thing. You know, people feeling that they have... A sense of purpose or value in the world. I mean, it's fundamental for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely, you get that from work. And then the other one is connection. You know, relationships. Um, you know, quite often, poor mental well-being will show up in relationships. Well, that's when we notice, or mm. other people notice that perhaps we're not necessarily functioning at our optimum. Is when our relationships are in trouble, and quite often those relationships are in the workplace. Yeah, and, and that's a really that's a really good point actually because we've got to remember actually our um, obviously our work and our private life or you know home life are intermingled, aren't they? And we can't just switch off. We can't yeah. switch off at work what's happening at, at at home and vice versa. And that's very you know that's what we've always got to remember, isn't it? That you know that's always going on, and we can't we're human beings at the at the end of the day, aren't we? 
Well, it's very interesting that we've got this lovely um, saying that is, you know, it's all about work-life balance. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you and I work for ourselves, so we know that, mm-hmm. you know, actually my perspective is there's life and there's balance in life, um, which includes work. You know, the work-life balance suggests that there's two things and actually work is part of our life. Um, and you're right, they do overlap the relationships. And particularly in the modern world, when we're expected to be available 24-7, you know, there are higher demands on us than ever before. Uh, we're contactable in 17 or 18 different ways at any one time. Yeah. Um, you know, and relationships, you know, they do. They kind of, they morph. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the modern world is, uh, yeah, it's an interesting place. Yeah, and it's about managing it, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I mean, so what can we do about this? Where would you think is the best? Let's let's go from a, the the point of view of the leader looking after his own, his or her sure. well being. Firstly, what what were the signs that you would look out for if things are starting to go in a bit um, pear shaped? <laughs> So, again, we're asked this question a lot. And, you know, the question of what should I do first is a really interesting one because actually that's dependent on what the issues are within your particular working environment, whether that's an organisation that you're leading or a small team that you're leading within one. So one of the first things we suggest is a risk assessment. So that's what the HSE call it. What's, what are the current risks within this organisation? Another way of looking at it is a people survey. Um, anonymous uh, that gives you the data of where things might not be as positive or as conducive to people thriving at work as they might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what that gives you is it gives you a way of prioritising what you might do first. Um, So actually if the data is telling you that, you know, people feel that the demands are in excess of what they can actually um, cope with, or if people are telling you that their relationships are impeding on their ability to contribute the best of themselves, then that's where you start. Um, You might find that people have absolute clarity of their role and understand how what they do impacts on the bigger picture, but they might find, you might find that people say that change is managed really poorly and communicated poorly and that creates stress. So, you know, it really depends on what's, because every organisation is different. Yeah, and I guess as the the organisation gets bigger, it becomes difficult, more difficult to pinpoint yes. uh, where the problem is, uh, and it's having a, 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 a. I guess it's it's about having some sort of check in on a regular basis. Yes. It, it was that you say? What, what, how regular would you think that should be? Is there is there, a, is there something you recommend? Or yeah, I mean, again, it depends on the organisation. You don't mm. want to kind of overload people with um, mm. you know these surveys, but you know at least annually, Mark, yeah. I would be suggesting. Mm. Um, you know, we have some clients that are doing at the moment quarterly surveys, but they're doing quarterly surveys because there's a real focus on improving a very um, currently unhealthy culture. Um, and so we're wanting to keep a check on it. But of course, what we've got is full engagement with everybody that works in the organisation to improve it. Hmm. Um, right. You know, so we're getting seven, 65 to 70% response, which is actually very high for a survey. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, it depends on the organisation in terms of regularity. Once you've actually got a culture that you feel is supporting the vision for the business um, that you can see is improving wellbeing, then annually is adequate. Right. 
Mm. And I, I noticed on your website you, you talk about mental health first aid, and I've, this this has come up in a, in a podcast uh, beforehand. Uh, what where, where do you start then? When you, once you've got this survey back and you know what the situation is, where does it all start? Where, where, how does mental health first aiding? How does that work? <laughs> So mental health first aid is interesting. It's a it's a really fantastic course. It's a two day uh, course. It's mental health first aid England actually wrote wrote this particular workshop, and we are accredited to to run that workshop. Um, but its intention is to deal with the problem on a first aid basis. So in a crisis situation, so it's very much an after the event type of training. It's not necessarily preventative, although arguably. If you have first aiders on site over a long period of time, then you would expect that it would have some positive future influence as well. Mm. Um, so first aid is very much about having people in the business who, if somebody is having a crisis situation or a manager is worried about somebody within their team, that the first aider is the person that they would consult with. Um, our kind of approach is, is, and we do deliver that training, but it's actually to say, well, okay, but let's look at this from a cultural big picture perspective. How can you inspire an environment where mental well-being is promoted proactively so that you prevent the issues arising so that the first aid and role becomes eventually unnecessary? Right. So that's kind of, do you see that you've got, you know, yeah, mental yeah. health awareness at one end. Let's get people taking responsibility for their own mental well-being, but equally understanding how their brain works, what creates stress, how stress affects them on, a, on an individual basis, because that's the other thing. You know, there are four different ways that stress symptoms can actually manifest, and they're very different for different people. Uh, what stresses me might be very different to what stresses you. Um, so actually teaching people how to manage their own stress levels and therefore their own mental health. And then equally, training managers how to manage it um, in a proactive way. So how to spot the signs, how to approach the conversation, how to have the conversation, where to signpost a member of their team if they are having some challenges before it really even needs the first aider. Yeah, and, and what you've just said there is about the cause and effect, isn't it? And if you can get to the cause mm -hmm. rather than the effect, I suppose, uh, and that's what's that's where you need to go uh, eventually, and where you need to get to, isn't it? And you've mentioned about culture, which will, could be causing it. Is there any other things that you come across that causes it as a, uh, as uh, that you know, are are regular occurrences? Well, so that's another interesting question. So culture is a very interesting one, isn't it, Mark? I mean, you and I both work with culture a lot. And, you know, traditionally, I think that culture has been seen that you have a business on the left and you have culture on the right, and the two need to kind of align with each other. And, you know, the business is about your sales and marketing and your operations and your finance functions, and your culture is about your people. Um, and actually, we don't really see it like that. We see it that you have a business, and then under that you have a culture, and then under that you have you know, people, sales and marketing, operations and finance. And culture drives everything. It's not, culture isn't about people. Culture includes people. But culture is about everything the business does. So actually for us, when we talk about culture, we're talking about, you know, how you pay people, how your processes are written, how your policies are worded. You know, it's, every, it's everything. Um you know, whether people, whether your team are called staff or your people or your team or, you know, it's, it, it's the nuances 
in terms of what's what's important, the message that you're giving to the people that effectively choose to invest their time and their effort and their talents in building your organisation and the extent to which they feel that they that you respect that and therefore will look after them, including their mental health. So, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But, you know, when you ask me what other things are there, well, they all come under culture, mm. right down to, you know, whether or not you prioritise efficiency and productivity over creativity and innovation because there's a conflict between those two things. Mm. You know, innovation and creativity takes a bit more time than efficiency and productivity. So... But, you know, what are you trying to achieve in an organisation and what's the culture requirement in order to make that possible? And then within that, what that means you do and don't do in regards to how you look after your people in order yeah. to achieve that outcome, you know? So it's it's all culture, really, from our perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all, that's, it all let, um, leads back to, uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and it's interesting what you said at the beginning. Actually, it, it's just about having a conversation and bringing it out. And 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 communication is so important in many ways. But I, I guess when it comes to mental health, it's first of all being able to express yourself and also have the ability to have the conversation with the right person, isn't it? That's exactly right. And you know, leaders play a really important role here. You know, I. We met with somebody a couple of weeks ago who's a chief exec of a large organisation and she was talking about a meeting that she had with her senior team and her expressing really kind of clearly and openly how something that had happened in the organisation had affected her on a personal level in terms of her own anxiety. And we were in awe of her because there was no fear there. She, She shared this with 30 of her senior team. This really affected me. It worried me. I couldn't sleep for three days. And I was worried about this specifically. And then I realised it was affecting my mental health. You know, you leaders don't do that. <laughs> that wow. No, it doesn't. But like you say, it, it's, it should be the case. Wow. You know, that, the reason why we're in awe is that it's so uncommon because yes. people haven't got the courage to do that. They no. think that they're putting too much on the line because they could get, yeah. you know, sacked or vilified or whatever it is but yeah yeah hats off to whoever that was and yeah it's not diff- it's it's sorry it's it's really difficult to be that well genuine isn't it it's about just genuinely saying this is the situation for me yes you no know, uh, uh, and i'm sharing it with you uh, and i'm sharing it with you and actually what i'm doing in that moment is i'm giving you permission mm. even as a senior heads of service we with a department of 300 to do exactly the same. Mm. Tell me when something is worrying you or stressing you or you feel anxious or, you know, you have digestive issues that you actually think might be stress-related or you've got reoccurring headaches that happen every Thursday when there's a report due Friday morning. You know, I'm giving you permission to be that open about what's going on for you so that I can do what's necessary to support you so that we reduce that for you so that you can be more effective. Mm. And that's such a such a powerful um, message, isn't it? That, yeah. that she's sending out to say, "Look, this is okay. I'm doing it, so that's okay for everybody else to exactly. to actually say when something similar is happening for you. You know, yeah. say because we can't do anything unless you do say. And let's have that introduce that culture into our you know our everyday uh, work. Um, it, it, yeah, fabulous. I think that's, I uh, she's obviously you know 
um, brave, but you know, doing the right thing. And that's what leadership's about, isn't it? It's not just about so, just yeah. doing, you know, what everybody else does. It's actually doing what I feel is the right thing at the right time. And that's not always going to be comfortable. Um, and taking yeah. away this belief that as a leader, that we have to be at the end of the journey, that other people are on with us, that we have to, you know, I mean, arguably, you know, and we could argue this, but, you know, we need to be a little bit kind of further along in some regards, of course, not necessarily in terms of technical skills, but but we don't have to have it all sorted. You know, our job as leaders isn't to be at the end, you know, waving to people at a distance going, come on, I'm over here. You know, actually, we're on the same journey. We're having the same challenges. Um, you know, let's let's be open about it. And this open dialogue concept is such a simple concept, but it's probably the toughest thing to overcome um, in organisations. It's just to create that real kind of safe, Space. I mean, I, you know, I've seen a single conversation completely turn around somebody who's been suffering for years. A single conversation with their line manager. Mm. And in other words, just come to, to mind is trust as well, isn't it? You've got to be in a yeah. position of trust to do that. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's, um, yes, it's, it's not easy, but it's something that um, we've all got to learn to do. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm conscious of the time. Um, yeah unfortunately time is running out um so what i'd ask all my guests to do is just to sum up what we've been talking about in some three top tips um that um, the listeners can take away um so that they can keep at the front of mind what mental health is and how they can use it and and make sure that they don't fall foul to poor yes. mental health Okay, well, it's interesting because the tips that I've kind of identified were specifically for leaders. Um, so firstly, I think what's really important is to identify the benefits to, to you as a leader or to you as an organisation or as an employer um, of managing mental health in your workplace. So there are lots of really obvious ones like, you know, if you do it well, then you'll reduce the likelihood of legal claims or you'll reduce absenteeism you'll improve presenteeism when people show up to work and aren't necessarily at their best. Um, it's all positive PR. You know, there's some really obvious things, but the benefits are individual to each organisation. And, and what this gives us as leaders is a reason for investing the time, the effort and the money in any kind of new initiative at all. So I think that's the first thing, is just get really clear about why would I do this? Um, and from experience, I would suggest that it's not always an away from motivation, i.e. in order to reduce, you know, mitigate risk. <laughs> that actually there's some towards motivation in there and that it will improve X and X for us. Um, so that's tip one. Um, tip two we've kind of touched on, which is around creating a culture of, and I, you know, I'm saying well-being, it's, you know, what you call it's up, up to you really, but a culture that essentially supports um, and nurtures this whole concept around an environment that enables people to genuinely thrive, um, to play to their strengths, you know, to bring the best of themselves, to, to create new products, services, you know, new ways of doing things, um, and identify what that culture looks like. So in other words, what's our ethos? What are the things we believe and value? And then how does that translate to what, how we behave around here in terms of what we do and don't do? And again, like I said, that extends to how we sell, how we market, how we operate our business, how we pay people, <laughs> you know, 
what our policies and processes say, how they're worded. I mean, it's, you know, it's, but essentially get that culture in place because the culture will drive everything. Um, and then lastly, it wouldn't surprise you, Mark, that I might suggest that a third tip is to invest in some training um, in three areas, you know, mental health awareness for everybody, um, managing mental health for managers um, and leaders so that actually they have the knowledge and skills and tools to very proactively enable well-being within their team. Um, and then also at, at this stage, because we are dealing with a situation where the World Health Organization is predicting that by 2030, depression will be the greatest illness if we don't do something about it. Um, actually investing in first stages um, to have people within the organization who are genuinely passionate about improving mental well-being, that have the empathy um, to, to really kind of understand what people are going through and equally to have the skills and knowledge to signpost them to the right support uh, which will also support the management, of course, because managers have, you know, a lot more to kind of focus on <laughs> than just the mental well-being of their team. So, so yeah, get really clear about the benefits, implement a culture that actually supports the outcome you want, and then lastly, invest in training so that everybody in the organisation has the ability to take responsibility for their own mental health. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'm just thinking that it's been a long time since we've actually met in the flesh, so we need to do that shortly. Um, I think so. At some point, I don't know when that will be, <laughs> but um, hopefully that will be the case. So, but for now, um, thank you for your time today. It's uh, thank been you, Mark. great, um, loads of value there for the listeners, um, and I, um, I hope we'll be able to have another chat at some point about maybe another topic. That would be great. But for now, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to leave a review. Don't forget to check out The Reluctant Leader Project at www.thereluctantleader.co.uk. Make a note to start, stop or continue doing whatever struck a chord in this episode. And until next time, be the best you can be.